from VinePair's New York City headquarters. I'm Joanna Sherino. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jamal. And this is the VinePair podcast. Uh, welcome, welcome everyone. And welcome to Tim McCurdy, who is here in place of our dear Adam. Tim, welcome. <laughs> Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, you guys all know are you, Tim. Are you sitting in Adam's seat? I he am. <laughs> it's, it's a power move. <laughs> I hope you like it. <laughs> oh, you guys. Um, so, so Tim, maybe you can uh, kick us off with what you've been drinking lately. Ooh, this is always one of my favorite parts of mm-hmm. the show. As I'm a actually listener. very excited to hear this because I wanted to ask you this. <laughs> so um, I had a nice, uh, last week had a nice uh, little Tuesday night experience. I went down to Dear Irving mm. um, and had the Gibson there, which... A classic. Hands, yeah, it's a classic. Hands down, one of the, it is the best Gibson in New York of those that I've tried. Mm-hmm. It's really wonderful. And then... That's Megan Dorman. That's Megan Dorman's mm-hmm. bar. Yeah, I was actually at the bar with Megan and nice. enjoying a drink with her. And then, so just around the corner from them was the friends and family opening of a new bar called Martini's. Um, that's yes. from Takuma Watanabe, who was recently featured in the Vine Pair 50. Um, and I had the Grand Martini there, which is their signature martini it's mm-hmm. absolutely wonderful it's a riff on a drink that takuma created while he was the head bartender at angel share which where, just closed yeah which mm-hmm. very sadly just closed it's a real loss for new york um but now we have Mar- martinis now right? we have martinis yes, yeah okay. and for those looking to google it it's martinis with a y at the end mm-hmm. and um <laughs> this is yeah it's a riff on a drink that he created which i believe was called the pour me a grape um, I right. think we've spoken about this on the mm-hmm. show before. I might be wrong, but yeah, that's a real wonderful drink. So looking forward to heading back as a kind of a, you know, a real person, a real customer and, <laughs> and checking out more from, from what they have. But it's a great space. Yes, me too. Mm-hmm. I'm really curious to go now. That sounds amazing. So Tim, I have to ask, so at Martini's, are we talking like, I think the most important question I have is what are they serving their, their drinks in? Uh, glassware wise? <laughs> Glasses? Well, or I don't know, are they serving them in human skulls? Like, I assume they're serving <laughs> No, not Grim. that kind of place, as far as I'm aware. Interestingly, actually, so I did see them using a couple of different glasses for this. I guess it was because they they were doing two sittings, and basically everyone arrived at once. Mm-hmm. But the glass that I had my particular one in um, was was almost like a martini glass meets a flute. It was very interesting. I saw that. that yeah. pretty, like, narrow. It was narrow. Mm-hmm. It was very fine in terms of the thickness of the glass. But, it, yeah, definitely the first time I've had a martini or martini. But, like, not a Nick like and Nora? Is it, was it wider than that? No, it's or? a V. No, no. D- oh, D, but oh, okay, interesting. But more, but more kind of stretched upwards. Okay, interesting. Yeah, yeah. But I definitely did seem to be like a kind of I don't know what it be four and a half ounce pour or whatever with dilution. So it, it fit the whole cocktail, which mm-hmm. is definitely important as well. It's funny you you bring up the glassware thing, Zach, because I feel like that's something we need to talk about at some time soon. With cocktail bars getting a little too inventive with their glassware. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I I heard about an experience you had recently, Tim. We won't name names, but <laughs> some, some interesting glassware. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. I think it's one of those things that when it's really good, you really appreciate it. And when it's really bad, you, it also stands out. Mm-hmm. And then oftentimes it's just somewhere in the middle there, mm-hmm. right? But yeah. either side of things, yeah, I think it really can kind of um, change your experience. Yes. And, and sure. make a place stand out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Definitely. 
so what about you, Zach? What have you been drinking? Well, I think the most interesting thing I had recently was a first for me, which was a sparkling orange wine. Uh, oh. So producer here in Washington, Traveris Cellars, um, makes this uh, makes they're a sparkling wine house, so that's all they produce. Mm. And uh, they recently released their first crack at this sparkling orange wine, which is really interesting to me. Um, so, I mean, orange wine for those listeners who who aren't familiar is essentially uh, a a situation where you're making a using white grapes, but you're making them like you would make a red wine. Uh, so long skin contacts to extract uh, maybe some color, definitely some aromatics and things like that from the skins. And the resulting wine is kind of a thing unto its own. And what's interesting to me about turning that into a sparkling wine is one of the kind of standout features of most orange wine is, um, you know, some tannin Mm. and some kind of uh, texture. And I wasn't really sure how that would translate into the sparkling wine format. And as it turns out, it translates really well. Um, I really enjoyed it. So uh, the wine is made from uh, like an extended maceration Pinot Gris. And then they that base wine is blended with some um, Gruner and I think another variety that I'm forgetting at the moment. And then, you know, taking through traditional uh, sparkling wine production. So secondary fermentation and bottle. Um, and it definitely had some of that like classic orange wine kind of nutty ar- aroma and and grippy texture, but lightened somewhat by mm. the effervescence. Um, the florality of the gris uh, came through pretty nicely. Yeah, it was really good. I uh, really enjoyed it. Very, very kind of uh, versatile food wine. We had it with uh, some different cheeses, but I think you could enjoy it with a lot of different uh, a lot of different drinks. So uh, those of you who have been looking for the excuse to turn your orange wine into sparkling wine producers, uh, <laughs> go for it. I think it'll work. What about you, Joanna? Yeah. So I, uh, you know, we finally have been in our neighborhood now. We're back from traveling and, and settled in and got to explore over this past weekend. And um, we went to a local beer bar called Gold Star Beer Counter. Um, which is a really cool spot. And we sat outside. It was a nice spring Saturday with our dog Cooper and had a few really great beers from actually another local spot, Wild East Brewing Co., um, which is also in Brooklyn. Um, I had a beer called the Sage Advice, which is a farmhouse style ale brewed with rye, sage, and juniper, which is a very interesting beer. You know, I've never had anything like that. Very, very herbal, um, but was refreshing. And then also had another uh, beer, um, Maybach, their seasonal Maybach called Prevernal Love, which was really malty and delicious, but still pretty medium bodied, not too heavy. Um, so that was really enjoyable. And now I want to go to Wild East Brewing Co. Nice. Yeah. I see what they did with the name there on the old Sage Advice. Sage Advice. Yep. They're so clever beer makers, aren't they? <laughs> mm-hmm. They're good. Can art and names, they go wild. <laughs> no pun intended with the whole botanical thing. Yeah. So, Zach, you're going to lead us into today's conversation. I am, yeah. So, with Adam on vacation, I figured someone had to come with some fire takes today, and it's, uh, I guess it's my turn. Um, and this is one that I've been sort of ruminating on for a little while, and it's been prompted by receiving a few different uh, of these books uh, as sort of uh, review copies or just um, being sent them by kind-hearted publicists who I appreciate. Um, but it's sort of this idea that I don't really get the point of cocktail books. Um, I kind of feel like I don't really know who they're for. And the biggest reason for that is that despite what I think is sometimes implicit or even explicit in the way that they're written and the way that they're laid out, I don't really think you can learn to bartend from reading a book. And if you can't bartend, then I think a lot of these recipes are functionally kind of useless because 
you know, and, and Tim having you on the podcast today is actually a great opportunity to kind of explore this. And I think it's come through uh, a lot in the various conversations you've done uh, on Cocktail College, your podcast. And that's that like technique is so critical that, you know, a, a, a recipe, you know, a, a list of ingredients and, and ratios and even a sort of like, OK, shake and then strain or whatever is really not the essence of bartending. And obviously, you know, the ingredients matter, the ratios matter and all that. But that, you know, there's so much technique, so much technique that I think bartenders themselves don't even really think about when they're making a drink. Because part of the point of being good at something like bartending is that so much of what you're doing is, you know, unconscious muscle memory. You're not thinking about the the way you're putting ice in a tin, the way you're shaking it, the way you're straining it, the way you're kind of doing all these things to ensure the quality of the drink you're making. And those are things that you cannot learn from a book. You can't learn them from a YouTube tutorial, although I think those are a little better. You have to learn it by doing it. And and I would not consider myself like a great bartender, but I bartended for several years. And it's given me, I think, a huge leg up on even, you know, home enthusiasts because I just understand I've made thousands of cocktails in my life. And that's something that not a lot of people can say. Um, certainly, you know, very, very few home bartenders have, have gone to those lengths. And so, you know, cocktail books, I think, in a way that sometimes cookbooks also kind of suffer from, promise this allure of like, replicating your favorite drinks at home. And I just don't think they can deliver on that. And it's, it's a fault of the format. It's not a fault of any individual book. Hmm. Well, I agree with you when you say that you can't learn to bartend from a cocktail book, but I don't think that that's the point. And I don't think that people who buy cocktail books believe that they can learn actual bartending experience by having this cocktail book. And I actually don't believe that, you know, for the bars that do release books, that that's what they're selling either, mm -hmm. right? Like, I don't think that Death & Co. is like, you can buy my book and it's essentially like being a bartender at this bar, <laughs> right? Like, I don't think that that's the case. What I do think, like I, just generally, I think cocktail books are very valuable for a number of reasons. Um, I think they're great resources to people who are, you know, interested in making drinks at home for people who are new to to mixology for lack of a better word right and i also think that beyond that if you think more historically cocktail books are kind of what yielded our modern cocktail culture and have kind of formed the foundations of what we know as cocktails and bartending today like if we didn't have those books and maybe this is not what you're arguing zach like i think it's i think it's kind of something different but if we didn't have the Bartender's Guide Jerry by Jerry Thomas, or the Savoy Cocktail Book, uh, or maybe the Joy of Mixology. Like, would would modern cocktail culture exist today? Like, for all of the bartenders that we know to build on those books and those resources. And I also think of obviously like the Essential Cocktail Book from Dale DeGroff, like all of these books that are so valuable and kind of exist in the modern cocktail canon. Um, I think that those are super valuable. But yes, back to this idea of like you getting sent books or us having books here. I just think that beyond anything else, they are just really important resources to have. Um, and yes, I think YouTube tutorials are also really valuable and like kind of learning how to make drinks. But I, so it's like going to a bar, mm -hmm. right? Like you can just learn. And I don't know. I don't know. I think about, about yeah. myself. Like I don't have any formal cocktail training. And I would like, it's the best part about being at a bar is watching a bartender 
do their thing yeah. and trying to, th- you know, pretending that I can go home and pick some of those skills <laughs> yeah. up without ever having, you know, been behind a bar. Watching someone shaking technique. That's something yeah, I exactly. really enjoy. Just, you know, I know that's a very fine point there, a very small point. I'm happy to be on, on for this one today because I think this is a very interesting discussion. And I think there are there are many different ways to tackle it. Um, Joanna's brought so many up of them up there, you know, the historical aspect. I think mm-hmm. that's a very, very strong argument in favor of cocktail books and the importance of cocktail books. I think you can just look at tiki as a category and say that without Beach Bumberry, Sip and Safari, you know, so many of the the old school tiki drinks and techniques and things that he rediscovered um, really like wouldn't exist today. We wouldn't have that category of bars and drinks or the quality that we do these days because, without that book. Mm-hmm. And I know this is not the specific argument that you're making, Zach. I think what you're saying is interesting that basically becoming bartender level having bartender level ability as a home bartender through reading these books. Mm -hmm. I think those books do exist though. And again, I'm not trying to pick a hole in in that with that too, but you look at, I think it's Meehan's Bartender Manual. Mm -hmm. This is a book that goes into everything, not just, it just doesn't just have drinks recipes. This is one that covers service, hospitality, bartending technique, just the whole philosophy of bartending. And these are books that are not just, you'll find at people's homes. These are books that you find at bars. Right. I think Death & Co is another great example there. I think Dave Arnold's Liquid Intelligence, if that's the style of bartending you want to do, mm-hmm. like the bars themselves have them. These are resources that you'll find everywhere, much in the same way that back in the day you would have La Russe Gastronomique and kitchens. And mm-hmm. um, I think I was telling you earlier, Joanna, but when I was coming up in kitchens in London, it was Marco Pierre White's White Heat. That was, that was the Bible for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. So... I think, you know, not only do they serve home bartenders, I think they serve the bartending community as well. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And like, who are they for? Which is the question that you ask, Zach. I think they're as much for the trade as they are for, you know, home bartenders or consumers. Okay, so I got to disagree with both of you here. And obviously, this is my (laughs) my prompt, but I want to I want to say a couple things. One is I'm not disputing the, the historic value of certain cocktail books that predate like the internet great we need ways to understand what people were doing in the 1800s pre-prohibition the post-prohibition era etc right fine i I think those books were all extremely valuable and and even you know um beach Barry's book which is obviously more recent than that but in this era now where you have an incredible set of resources that are not a uh sort of glossy overpriced book that you know was produced i think largely to stroke the egos of certain bar operators um and because like they look good on a coffee table mm-hmm. and don't have a lot of value like you can get recipes lots of places including vine pair you can get great information about what bartenders are thinking lots of places including like tim's podcast those are way more useful for anyone who wants to understand what's going on in cocktail culture than any of these books I think there are like a handful of cocktail books, and you actually mentioned Death & Co., and that might be one of them, that come from truly important, historically relevant bars. But there are, I don't know, 500 cocktail books and maybe five bars that deserve to have a book that's about them, and the rest of them are just vanity projects, which fine, whatever, I don't have a problem with that. But Tim, you can't honestly tell me that if someone showed up in one of the kitchens you worked at in London and said, oh yeah, I've read La Technique by Jacques Pepin, I've never cooked, 
but I've read that book a bunch. <laughs> they get laughed out of the fucking kitchen. <laughs> and the idea that you can teach yourself anything from a book that's not like, I don't know, writing. And even that, you got to do a lot of that too. Like books are great. I love books. One day mm-hmm. I might write one, but they're not at all, uh, or not, they're not the end all be all. And they're not anything like the sort of base level for how you acquire skills, especially skills that are based on a combination of, you know, kind of manual dexterity and skill and a kind of intellectual understanding. And this is the other piece that I want to come back to. And I'm glad you brought up cooking, Tim, because I think it's extremely similar. I tend to think that one of the things you learn when you cook and whether you cook professionally or cook at home a lot, one of the things that I think is a mark of a talented cook in one form or another is the ability to substitute supplement and modify. And that I think is a lot of what modern bartending requires, right? Because yeah, anyone can, can with some degree of faculty can open a cocktail book and say, okay, I can pour in an ounce of this, a half ounce of that, three quarters of an ounce of that, stir it and pour it in a glass. That's not that hard. You know, if you've got a decent jigger, you can do that. The stirring technique, maybe you need to practice. But to understand how those flavors work together, why those drinks, whether they're classics or, or new inventions work in theory, requires a, not just a familiarity with the ingredients, but a sort of mental capacity to understand the, the complexities of a modern cocktail or a classic cocktail, how they work and how taking an, an ingredient out or modifying it or doing different things to it is really fundamentally potentially changing the drink and what you might need to do to the rest of the cocktail to continue to keep it in balance. And that I think is just not something a book is ever going to be able to explain in any meaningful way. And it's just a shortcoming of the medium. Like it's not designed for that. A book is a static thing and it it can't substitute for real world experience. And again, I'm not saying that every cocktail book that comes out is, is claiming that it can teach you to bartend. But again, if the drink, if they're for the average consumer, which let's be honest, are most of the people who are ponying up 40, 50 bucks for these, it's not, you know, bars might buy one copy, but you know, if, again, if these cocktail books were selling 500 copies total, I'm pretty sure they would no longer be getting made. And so, you know, again, I just kind of come back to this whole notion that I think there are people out there buying these books, thinking they're going to let them make these drinks at home. And they just, they just don't, you just can't do that. I mean, I think, I think, first of all, I got to push back a little bit here. I, I, I do agree with some of the things that you're saying there, but I, I do think there are books out there, some of which we've mentioned. There are also others that cover those topics that you're talking about, those skills. The fundamentals. The fundamentals, yeah. yeah. Obviously, those things, you cannot, you, you don't know what a tomato tastes like from reading, right? Like, that's never mm-hmm. going to be the case. So there there needs to be some kind of practical aspect and tasting and practice and repetition for you to gain those skills. But I think there are books that do lay out these these fundamentals, as you say, Joanna. Personally, though, I don't want to see every cocktail book try and tackle that. Mm-hmm. I don't, because that becomes repetitive. And if you are a person that is willing to spend this amount of money on a cocktail book, I think chances are you're adding it to your collection of cocktail books. Mm-hmm. Because I think... People do the same with cookbooks. Like, they like it for a reason. Um, I think one of the the aspects of this conversation that's interesting and we can maybe explore too is, okay, the relevance of cocktail books in the age of the internet. Mm-hmm. And I think there are arguments in favor and against. But one of the other things that really struck me when, when you're talking about the purpose of a cocktail book, Zach, I think they're more important than ever just to capture the essence of a bar. And I think that's what that's what cocktail books are about. Yeah, They're, that's what I was thinking mm-hmm. too. It's like a stamp, right? Yeah. 
they're stamping, like putting a stamp on who, what their identity in mm-hmm. time. Yes. Right. And like bars, there's, they come and go, especially so, you know, very often these days because of the current climate. And I think having that as a, as a historical memory of a bar, maybe they're laying out their philosophies, you know, maybe they're including all of their drinks, more than the the three or four that they might, if they're lucky, become known for in the media mm-hmm. on the internet, and also yeah, it's just this this is a memory, and 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 those kind of memories will never exist on the internet because of the medium that that is right? right. That needs to live in a book. Yeah, here's an example, right? So we talked about liquid intelligence, Dave Arnold's book. As I've discussed on this podcast, I've made the b- banana hostino cocktail, which is from that book, because I had it at Booker and Dax years and years ago. It doesn't exist anymore. And, you know, I've never had any bartending experience, but I decided that I wanted to tackle that drink. Good thing it's in that book, right? I know yeah. it's on the internet too, whatever. Mm-hmm. But still, mm-hmm. you know, for somebody who was a fan of that place and of Dave Arnold and his craft, it was in that book and it's, it's important mm-hmm. to me and it was valuable to me. Did you enjoy the version? I know that you did, but I'm just asking this. Just in terms of the conversation, you enjoyed the version of the drink that, that you I created. <laughs> yeah, it was amazing. Did you <laughs> did you go into it expecting it was going to be as good as one that Dave Arnold or perhaps Jack Schramm might have made for you? No, probably not, right? Because I had limitations on the equipment and stuff and I had to buy special ingredients. But like, I still did it and I was still proud of myself for doing it and it was cool to have done it you made it for good podcast content i'll agree yes (laughs) this is why i did it he's given us us so much podcast content yeah (laughs) but like i I think of that as like such an such an edge case that like i don't really think it justifies the entire category of cocktail books like i'm very glad you had that experience and and you know you noted uh you know, kind of quickly there that you could have just looked the recipe up on the internet. So again, does the cocktail book need to exist? I mean, debatable. I think though that my point is, I just, it's what you said, Tim, I just find it to be a little bit like the idea that there are that many bars that deserve or or merit preservation in time. Like if your bar doesn't last, do we really need a cocktail book about it? Like, again, <laughs> fine. You know, like there's just a, a degree of like, frankly, like sort of self-congratulatory kind of bullshit that surrounds the whole category that I just find kind of unpleasant. Like the idea that any, there are so few people in the category and in the field who are doing, and Dave Arnold might be one of these very few people. There are a few of them. I don't mean no one who are doing truly novel and out there things that maybe do need to be noted to be preserved in some sense. And, but just the idea that there are that many bars in, even in the entirety of the world, let alone, you know, New York, where frankly, a lot of these books originate, um, or even other cities that just like have to be, you know, kind of preserved for all times is just like, really, I I just, I don't buy it. I, I think that, you know, so few people, like, there's a lot of people making great drinks, and they will always be a lot of people making great drinks. But the idea that, that we need again, these, you know, a dozen or so books that come out every year, if not more, just feels like, it just feels like, again, they're kind of, they're vanity projects. And look, I mean, I got vanity too. I'm not out here pretending I don't, but I am at this point not, you know, committing to writing a book just to stoke my own ego. It's so funny because I think that's what cookbooks are all about. And I will, I'll add cocktail books into that because, you know, when I worked in food, it was 
shocking how many cookbooks came out every year. Just when you think there couldn't possibly be another cookbook, there are so many, and it's because there is a demand for them. So I think that the same must be true of cocktail books. If people people like them, people mm-hmm. buy them. And so I think people will continue to make them. Bars mm-hmm. will continue to make them. I think we need to also maybe add a little bit of nuance to this conversation too in in, oh, in, no, in, in the <laughs> sense of okay because we're, we're tackling this i i i think zach i think you might get a lot of hate mail for this one but i think it is like i said i, I think hope this you is get a, so <laughs> many books sent to you <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> people trolling you with every cocktail book no but i want to add that cocktail books aren't just bars or bartenders right, right. right? there's there's other ones out there a great example, I think, is Robert Simonson's um, Three Ingredient Cocktails. Yep. That was one of the first cocktail books I, I owned myself. Me too. And I just went through it as, as someone that was new to cocktails going like, okay, only three ingredients. Amazing. For the most part, most of these ingredients are easily obtainable. Mm-hmm. And I just went through drink by drink. And okay, yeah, the early versions of what I was making were not bar quality, but it was more about, you know, and no pun intended here for another book, The Joy of Mixology. It was about doing this at home and it was about recreating these drinks and being like adding bottles to my collection. Okay, now I need something like Falernum or things like that. Mm-hmm. Now I need green chartreuse. Like, this is fun. I'm seeing my bar grow and I'm, I'm getting into this new hobby. Like, and I, you're honing your skills at the same time, You right? are over time, mm-hmm. yeah, for sure. Yeah. And Well, and it's funny. It's like, I think about this and I, to kind of come back to where I started, like, some of this is undeniably colored by the fact that like I did bartend. And so some of the like thing that you are describing, Tim, is stuff that I did just by like working in a bar mm-hmm. and making drinks. And like you you do try things. You're like, you know, there's a there's the first time that someone orders a drink that you've never heard of and you go like, oh shit, I gotta look this up. And again, I started doing this before. You could easily do it on your phone. So we had, you know, cocktail books that were just essentially lists of drinks and, you know, ingredients and stuff like that. And certainly at the time that was uh, very useful to me because as like a twenty two-year-old, 23-year-old, I didn't necessarily know uh, as many cocktails as I do now, say. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, you also got the opportunity to play around. You know, you had all those ingredients on hand. And if you were working in a decent quality bar, you had a lot of them on hand and you could play with them. And you, you know, that that was obviously a way to learn. And I may be, you know, here kind of overvaluing my own path to some degree of cocktail competency uh, and downplaying another path, which you have both taken in your own way. Um but I do think that there's a there is also to my eyes I guess a difference between what something like the book you're talking about Robert Simonson's book which are you know largely um, a large collection of recipes and a little more instructive and what I kind of am again envisioning which is the sort of cocktail bar book which is you know a lot of sort of oh here's the story of our bar and how it was created and why we're such geniuses and here are the drinks that we created and like it's just a little I don't know. I, I find it's a coffee be... table book, like you said. I, I, I want to know the book that you read that that's really <laughs> inspired this this passionate hate, Zach. I'm not going to ask you to no, call it. I will tell you offline. I'm not going <laughs> to ask you to. Um, no, I think there is that distinction between the two styles. But if we're talking Agree. about cocktail books in general, I'm not sticking them into to Room 101 to kind of confine them to history forever. Uh, that's a British TV reference there. I'm not sure. Nope. That, I was looking at Joanna and I, I realized, <laughs> it, it, yeah, okay, I'm not consigning those to history forever. Here's a question, though. So cocktail books in the age of the internet. 
Joanna, what's your take on that? Because obviously, like you oversee, <laughs> you know, Vinepair mm-hmm. and 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 a large database of recipes mm-hmm. and and that process. Like, what do you feel about the relevance there? Because to Zach's point, it is much easier to just Google a recipe, right, right. and and land on on Vinepair and and find a cocktail recipe. Yeah, so, I mean, I I think we talked about this a little bit earlier. Um, I think that obviously the internet is has made pretty easy work of all of this, but I do think that, you know, you're going to find variation on recipes across the internet. And I think that makes it a little challenging. So if you do want, like, I think there is something so nice about having a book that kind of preserves a specific version. I'm going to say a cocktail recipe. Obviously there are other things that go into these books, but, but like this is the version of whatever cocktail from this specific bar at this specific time. And you know that it's the one because it's been, you know, it's accurate. It's been, you know, there are resources and and fact-checked and all of those things and reported, of course. Um, So I think that there's something nice about that kind of um, accuracy of it or, yeah. Yeah, consistency. Consistency, you can trust it, right? Maybe more than a blogger Mm -hmm. who's telling you that this is a recipe (laughs) for... For sure. Uh, paper plane. Right. Because also, I guess, let's let's be honest here, and, and this might be, you know, a little bit in too much into like how the sausage gets made for, for those. But when it comes to online and Google, the result that's going to come first is not necessarily the best, the best. cocktail recipe. It's, mm-hmm. it's the site that has the best control over their SEO and SEO right. practices, right? Mm-hmm. Like that that's the reality of it. That might not be the right one. Right. And also when you're considering like where the recipes are coming from, maybe it's coming from a specific person and it's a widely known, you know, recipe ratio, whatever. But for something that's not, like it can really vary based on the taste of the of the publisher, the, wh- whoever's putting that recipe out, right? So it can be Vine Pear's version of a, you know, dirty martini or, I don't know, hurricane or whatever mm. have you. Um, and that might not be to your taste or whatever, but maybe there's a, a more solid, accurate version somewhere in a book. Mm-hmm. But again, I, I think I want to add one last piece here and then we should we should probably wrap things up. And that is that I think the other answer to this question of like, why do these books exist and who are they for is like, they are a way for a bar to commoditize their recipes that the internet does not generally offer. Well, yeah, that's because people just take those recipes and put them online, right? So yeah. these are our recipes from our our bar, and here's a way that you can get them. This is my intellectual property. Exactly, which is a bigger conversation. <laughs> exactly. But I do think that that in that, and, and again, I think this is a conversation even you've had sometimes on your podcast in some way or another, Tim, like relatively few of those drinks are really anyone's intellectual property, and they're not always even the, the money from the sale of those books does not always go to the person who created the cocktail, mm-hmm. uh, even if it was True. created in the bar. Mm-hmm. And I would love to see, I don't know that it's ever going to happen. It would be very interesting though, if some of this att- attempt to, and, and I and sort of desire to capture the importance of a bar and the, the history of a bar were put into some other medium besides just a coffee table book. Like, I think it would be very interesting to see, um, you know, whether it's video, audio, something, an attempt to kind of encapsulate and capture what a bar means. Because the other thing to me is like, in some ways books are just, I love books. I mean, I'm a book person. I own an entirely, entirely too many. And most of them uh, were not sent to me. I bought them, but um, they are, they are good for certain things and bad for others. 
and putting you in a place and in a time is a challenge for any book. And I would love to see more of these bars, you know, the places that we've uh, sort of at least alluded to or even mentioned by name, some of which no longer exist. It would be great if instead of just a cocktail book, we had, you know, a video um, you know, uh, not necessarily a full length movie, but some video inside the bar, some, some attempt to capture those eth that ethos and technique and things like that. Um, not just in a very static medium, but in a, in one that may, might feel a little more alive and might allow you to really watch the, the magic happen. It's an interesting concept. I think photos are helpful, but even photos, man, they're just that, that they're, I mean, I, I get what you mean, but, but they don't. I, this is another side gripe, but like they're all they're all produced, right? You know, it's all the, the cocktail is made for the for the photo shoot, and I don't always believe that they're the exact drink. <laughs> um, you know, we all know about prop food, um, mm -hmm. and I just to me, you know, it's, it comes back to something that you both talked about at the very beginning of this conversation. The magic of a bar is being in the bar, and mm -hmm. I just think that a book doesn't capture that magic. Um, not, none, very few of them have to me, and even then. It's a fleeting glimpse. And I wish there were more ways to archive and preserve bars than just this one format that does seem to exist. Perhaps the best format. Who knows? Maybe our, maybe our listeners will write in and, and, and give oh, some yes. of their feedback here. Podcast.com. <laughs> Tell me how wrong I am. <laughs> Send him uh, all the cocktail books, please. please. <laughs> Around 40 to $50, ideally coffee table or style. Or send them to us because we love yeah, them. You, yeah, we exactly. appreciate them. You can send them to both places. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, thank you both. Thank you, Tim, for joining us today. And thanks for listening. And Zach, talk to you Friday. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast. If you love this show as much as we love making it, then please leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. It really helps everyone else discover the show. Now for the credits. VinePair is produced and recorded in New York City and Seattle, Washington by myself and Zach Jabal, who does all the editing and loves to get the credit. Also, I would love to give a special shout out to my VinePair co-founder, Josh Mallon, for helping me make all this possible. And also to Keith Beavers, VinePair's tasting director, who is additionally a producer on this show. I also want to, of course, thank every other member of the VinePair team who are instrumental in all of the ideas that go into making this show every week. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again.